We are in week three of Faith in 4D, Faith in 4D. And that's really kind of exploring this idea that faith can be something that is far richer than just my individual relationship with God. Over the summer, we did talk about our individual relationship with God, and we kind of considered that to be a a line, a one-dimensional line. So let's see this next slide here. We've got the one-dimensional line, and listen, lines are, are great. Nothing wrong with lines. My linear relationship with God can be totally good, totally healthy, and that's great. But God's designed us to have a a wider dimension as well, and that's a dimension with each other, a dimension that's relational. So we talked about individual faith, then relational faith last week. This week, we're going to talk about a deeper experience, and that's a communal faith. And then next week, how that all, or the week after, how that all spills out into the world, and that's our social faith. So individual, relational, this week, we're going to talk about communal, and next week, we're going to talk about uh, uh, social. So... um, What we're looking at today is a communal faith. Now, some of you might already be a little concerned. You're like, well, isn't communal for hippies? You know, some of you are uh, old, you're like, hey, I remember those communal people, and it's, you know, kind of scary. Some of you might say, isn't communal sort of the same root word as communist? And don't worry, we're not talking about communism. We're just talking about a biblical vision of living a life together in community. Now, some of this is uh, a little bit weird for us, especially as Americans. We don't quite understand or get in our soul this idea of communal relationship. But communal is essentially this, a collective sharing or commonality among members of a community. Collective sharing or commonality. So by that definition, we're all in some kind of community, whether we know it or not, whether it's intentional or not, we're a part of a broader experience that's not just about my individual self, or just my close friends and family. We're all a part of a little broader community. And what we're gonna do today is talk about how God designed us to live in big communities together. We're gonna talk about two of them today. And then how can I intentionally embrace that, intentionally invest in the broader, big communities around me so that I can have a richer, more full experience, richer, more full life, and a richer and more full faith. The basic premise is this that we are interconnected within a larger community from which we find an identity and purpose beyond ourselves. If we just live sort of an insular life where it's just us, just our close friends and family, we have a pretty small life. God designed us to live a bigger life. And for some, that bigger life can be just a little bit of a stretch beyond your immediate friends and family and, and getting involved as you feel comfortable. Others feel comfortable in large rooms and large settings. Some of us might think, you know, big picture, uh, church community, big picture uh, involvement with our city, big picture, you know, I'm a part of a great nation, and big picture, I'm a part of the world around us. So some of us think communally, others of us tend to be maybe more reserved to smaller groups. All that's okay, but today we're going to talk about a kind of community that works for you, bigger than yourself. But this idea does not sit perfectly within American culture. American culture tends to be pretty individualistic. In fact, I did some research this week on what are the American values, and there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions. But these four American values come up a lot as you do the research about really what drives America culturally. And these are four words that come up all the time. Achievement, action, work, and materialism. That kind of works, right? That's pretty much the American culture. 
Now, if you look at, at Hispanic culture, which we will do in uh, two weeks at the fiesta, Hispanic culture tends to be more communal, as well as black culture tends to be more communal. And so there's other cultures that we can learn from and we can say, listen, as America is kind of a melting pot of cultures, and as more of the European Americans tend to be more individualistic, we can learn from each other and say, okay, how can we be more communal? How can we be more communal? How can we look beyond ourselves, beyond our immediate friends and family, and really embrace this idea that we're a part of a big community, which we can find identity and purpose beyond ourselves. So we're gonna talk about two communities today. We're gonna to talk about living in a communal faith with the church. So we'll talk about church for the first half, and then living out a communal faith in the world. So we're gonna talk about living communally in the church and in the world. And I think it's gonna be a good time together. Now we're gonna start with the church. When Jesus founded his church, he founded his church with a specific vision of togetherness, a specific vision of closeness, of unity. And I believe Jesus describes his church most completely in John chapter 17. This is when Jesus is about to head to the cross. He's about to be crucified and be raised again to be with the Father. So he's facing a very, very difficult time. He knows he's leaving, but he knows what he's leaving behind. And what he's leaving behind is his church not an institution, not buildings and boards, but human beings that are connected with him and human beings that are connected to each other. And he knows as he leaves, these human beings are gonna go through some hard times together. They're gonna be persecuted. There's gonna be times where they're disagreeing and wanting to rip each other's faces off. I mean, read the book of Acts, right? Fierce disagreements, fierce contention with each other, persecution from the world around them. He knows they're gonna be facing it but he prays for them in John chapter 17. And he doesn't just pray for them at that time 2,000 years ago, he's praying for us. He's praying for the church in all eras, in all places in the world. And here's what he says in John 17, 11. He's praying to his father. Father, I'm now departing from the world, but they're staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. You hear the prayer of Jesus for the church? unity. He is praying to his father right before the cross. I know I'm leaving them behind. I know I'm leaving them in this world. I know they will face hardships, but God keep them united. He goes on later in verse 18, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for those who will ever believe in me through their message. He's praying for us. And he's praying the same thing, I believe now, as he did 2,000 years ago. God, I'm building my church by my spirit, and I pray that they would be one. I pray that they would be united. I pray that you would protect them in this world, and I'm sending them into this world to be a light of the kingdom of heaven. That's the church community. That's communal faith. The church is a community brought together by Jesus. A church is a community united by God through Jesus. The church is a community sent into the world by Jesus to, to love as Jesus loved us, to bring unity and peace and kindness to this world as Jesus did. The church is a community that would be for all the world in every era, in every place. We see as Jesus gives his great commission in Matthew 28, and also again in Acts chapter one, he's saying, listen, the church is gonna thrive in all the world, bringing the light of the kingdom of heaven. But that happens when we live in a community. The church is communal. A large community through which we find an identity and purpose beyond ourselves large community through which we find identity and purpose beyond ourselves. 
And that's my, my story, and it's a story with my wife and I as well. Uh, we both grew up in this church, Rancho Church. And uh, as an insecure kid, I've shared with you the story. This church wrapped their arms around me, and they, they loved me and mentored me, and they put so much time into my life and into my family and into my mom and my dad and my brother, and they pieced together this very dysfunctional family. And so this church was my home. It was my home. And then I wanted to give back as this church poured into my life in youth group. I wanted to give back, so I started volunteering in, in youth group, started volunteering in a middle school group. And, and they said, well, why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? I said, fine, I'll do that. How about you take the middle school group over the summer? Eh, maybe I'll do it. We'll pay 250 bucks. I'm in. And so I was all in to middle school. And then uh, I really got affirmed in this and went off to, uh, uh, to Bible college and then became full-time youth pastor here. I met my wife here. Uh, she and her family went to church here at Rancho, and, uh, and so we built our relationship here. We got married here at the church. Uh, we had four kids. They were all dedicated at this church. All four kids were baptized in this church. Uh, our youngest was baptized last month here in this church. They all went to school in this church, I mean, preschool all the way through high school and loved it. So yeah, I'm not expecting your experience to be mine. <laughs> I mean, my whole life has been here for 40 years, and I expect my life to be here for 40 more. I love this place, it is my community. And my prayer for you is that you would experience just little pieces of the pleasure that we've shared here. A little pieces of what it means to live communally here with each other. And to be a part of a learning community, supporting each other, growing together, building friendships, and then together doing a lot of good for this community as we've launched the rescue mission and run single, uh, single moms and babies village and have transitional housing and, and food pantries and case management and housing counseling, all these things that we get to do as a church to help people in need, locally and overseas NGOs. I mean, the things that we've been able to do together are remarkable. I love this place, I love this community. And I love hearing so many of, of you just getting a piece of what we've enjoyed as you build friendships here and maybe as you go through a tough time together, getting support here and comfort here and find peace here. For those of you who might felt, have felt rejected by the church or rejected by God, you come here and you feel at home. I'm loved here, I'm accepted here, I'm welcomed here just as I am with all my struggles and I'm not judged and I'm not ostracized. We love this community. Now there's two ways to be a part of, of the church and they're both good by the way. Two ways to be a part of a church as an attender and as a member. An attender and a member. So when we say an attender, we are just welcoming everybody who would show up. Whether you show up once a month, here live or online, you show up occasionally, you show up a few times a year, that is fantastic. We love the fact that you're here as an attender. Maybe you show up regularly, you're here, you enjoy it, you're connecting a little bit, that is fantastic. But we wanna encourage you that when the time is right to take that next step and consider yourself to be a member. Now this isn't anything formal at Rancho. We don't have membership classes. We don't have like oaths you have to sign or take you into a dark room with cloaks and candles. None of that kind of stuff, right? But this is a heart decision that says, you know, I'm not just attending here. I think this is my home. I think this is my communal family of faith. In our hearts we say, you know what? I think now's the time for me to consider myself a member. And I believe that's what Jesus wants to call us to is this deepening relationship with what he called his church, his gathering. Back to John chapter 17, verse 22, here's the vision of Jesus. He's praying to his heavenly Father. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. 
is a verse we read quite often because it says, if the church can love each other with the love of Jesus, that's when the world is gonna know the love of Jesus is real, when they see it at work. But as long as the church is fighting over every little nuance and doctrinal disconnects and political disconnects and judgy, judging this and judging that and eyeing each other up, and I mean, as long as that's church, the world's gonna say, well, this whole thing with Jesus is a fraud. If the church doesn't love each other as a community, there's no reason why the world should pay any attention to Jesus because we're the reflection of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect by any stretch. It just means when we're imperfect, we're humble about it. And it doesn't mean we agree all the time. I mean, God knows. I mean, <laughs> the church hasn't agreed on anything for 2,000 years. So if the church hasn't agreed on much in 2,000 years, the goal isn't for us to be in, in perfect agreement now. But the goal is when we disagree, we disagree with humility. Saying, listen, I don't know all the answers to everything. I might interpret this passage this way. You might interpret it this way. You might have this theology. I might have this theology. That's fine. We love each other as brothers and sisters. We love each other in Christ. Then the world will know the love of God is real. And that's really what it means to consider ourselves to be a member of the church, that we belong here together. We're learning together humbly. We're building relationships together. Maybe joining a group, right? So, you know, shameless plug, rancher.tv slash groups. Join a group, that's taking a step, right? To be a member, to build some friendships, to learn together, to grow together, right? This is, I think, what it means to be a member of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul uh, gives this very famous analogy of what it's like to be a member of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body, so it is with the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul is saying, like a human body has many parts, arms, legs, hands, feet, mouth, ears, they all work together to make one living, beautiful organism that's functioning and productive, right? That's the church. Jesus is the head, we follow Jesus, and through him, everything works together. Now we're different, different parts, different skills, different abilities, different perspectives, different opinions, different theologies, different politics, whatever it is, we're all different, but each of us together together makes the entire body of Christ. And the world can see the love of Christ when they see that through us. So to put it this way, we are the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a business. The church is not a board. It is the church together, members of the body of Christ, living in the grace of Jesus Christ, continuing the work of Jesus Christ together, together. So I want to encourage you, for those of you who are attending, we are happy to have you and you are enough however often you come here, again, live and online, you're enough and that's fantastic. If God ever stirs in your heart to think of yourself as a member of this church, maybe it's time to get plugged in, join a group, build some friendships, join a team, serve, volunteer, there's countless opportunities. The second community we want to talk about besides the church is the community of the world the entire world, right? Or we can make that a little smaller, the world around us. Communal faith in church is a walk with God together, but how do we live that faith out in the world? How do we consider ourselves to be a vital part of the world around us? Now, I want us to consider something that might be a little unfamiliar to you, especially if you were raised in church. Here's how it goes. What if we considered the world 
a large community through which we find an identity and purpose beyond ourselves. Not just the community of the church, but we have the same sense that we're a part of the community of the world. What if we were to consider ourselves a vital part of the community of the world, fully engaged in this world, loving this world, serving this world, caring for this world? What if we considered church to be our, our faith community, but we consider the world to be a community that we share our life with and try to make an impact in? That's a little unconventional. Because in sort of conventional religious thinking, particularly Christian thinking, conventional Christian thinking might say, well, there's us and there's them. There's the church and there's the world. And, and the religious paradigm kind of keeps those things apart. Here's the church full of good people. There's the world full of bad people. Here's the church full of uh, you know, truth seekers. And there's the world that's all wrapped up in lies. Here's the church that's right, and here's the world that's wrong. Here's the church that's holy, yeah, right? Here's the world that's unholy and sinful. That's conventional religious thinking, conventional Christian thinking. But it creates so many problems. It creates an us versus them mentality that is simply not helpful. And whenever we talk about this, which is every once in a while, we, we say things like, love the world, love the world, love the world. And a lot of people who are raised in church were like, oh, what are you talking about, love the world? I was taught to kind of separate myself from the world, that the world is sort of dark and the world is sinful and I need to kind of protect myself from the world so spend more time in the community that we call the church. I get that thinking. I was raised in that thinking. I just don't think it's right thinking. What is the most famous verse in the world? The most famous verse in the world that I'm telling you half of non-Christians can recite because it's so everywhere and you'll be able to finish this for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God loved the world. So whenever we talk about loving the world or loving the world around us, religious people sometimes start hyperventilating. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to the world for the world, right? So loving the world should be natural to us. Not being afraid of the world or afraid of the sin of the world or the values of the world or judge the world, all the things that are sort of normal religious, just stop it. We follow Jesus, let's do what Jesus did. He loved the world, engaged the world, served the world, rooted for the world. He, he helped, I mean, make the world a better place, that's an understatement. No one's impacted this world for good more than Jesus and we just follow him. So what if we said, okay, yep, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna embrace the community of, of this Christian church. But I also follow Jesus, I'm gonna embrace the community of this world. That would be cool. But there are two things that sort of press against the idea of us really becoming a community within this world. There's two, what I call, you know, sort of religious paradigms that aren't really helpful. One is the us against the world thinking or paradigm. Us against the world. The second is doom and gloom thinking. So we'll briefly talk about both of these. Let's talk about the us against the world thinking. Us against the world thinking is when a church community thinks, hey, we are the people of God and the world is not. We are the saved, they are the unsaved. We are the right, they are the wrong, right? We are the holy, they are the sinners. It's the us versus them. It's totally kind of typical Christian thinking. At least it was in some decades past. It's thankfully changing a little bit and I'm grateful for that. The us against the world paradigm became very popular in the 80s and 90s. I'm gonna give you a little bit of history and I will be brief, I promise. 
But right around the 70s, early 80s, um, there, were, there was some societal decay happening. And for those of you who are my age or older, if you are 50 years old or older, you will maybe remember some of this. Um, cities were riddled with crime. There was a big time rise in pornography and promiscuity. And so there were these sort of dehumanizing, uh, decaying sort of cultural realities taking root in American civilization. And yet there was this, this underpinning that there has to be something better than this. So as society's kind of decaying with crime and promiscuity, there was what was labeled a moral majority that organized and said, we have to fix some of this stuff. And so the moral majority, a political and religious movement emerged. I'll define it this way. A political and religious movement called the moral majority rose to prominence. It was a marriage of politics and religion intended to take the country back. Again, some of you who are a little bit on the older side remember this. And let me just tell you, some of it actually worked according to a certain definition. So an age of law and order rose. Age of law and order rose. And what happened was violent crime dropped incredibly. Let me show you this FBI chart of violent crime uh, reports in the United States of America. Um, in the 90s, it was at its uh, peak. And this is when that moral majority said, hey, we have to bring in law and order and elect the right people. This is, there's a dark side of this as well with mass incarcerations and all kinds of injustices that took place as a result, but it, it was difficult. Bottom line, the violent crime numbers dropped pretty dramatically. So you could say that this moral majority kind of worked by that definition. And I do put that in air quotes kind of intentionally and I'll tell you why. The second thing that happened was this moral majority kind of started this church growth movement. You gotta get people back to church because church was declining rapidly in the 60s and 70s was kind of a peak. Then it started falling off a cliff. And this moral majority in the 80s and 90s said, hey, we gotta get people back to church. So you see in this graph, in 80s and 90s, the slide of church attendance leveled out. And people did start coming back to church, or at least they weren't leaving church as fast as they used to. Now, since the 2000s, it has fallen off a cliff, and this data only goes to 2013. It is far worse now, post-COVID, far worse. But during that moral majority era, era of the 80s, 90s, leaking into the, into the 2000s, people did start coming back to church. So crime went down, people started coming back to church. That's the area in which I lived. And I gotta tell you, as a Christian guy and as a pastor, being on a church staff in the, in the 90s and 2000s, that era, to put it very crudely, wasn't bad for business, right? People were coming. There was this faith kind of ethic in there. So you could look at that, par at that era and say, okay, well, there's some positive things in there. But there was a dark side as well. We talked about mass incarceration and some injustices that were tolerated or even fueled, but there was other things there as well. The majority, uh, the moral majority era formally married politics and religion. It wasn't even, it wasn't even hidden. It was like political parties are outside church service on Sunday to take your voter registration type stuff. Political parties in churches, both Democrat and Republican, handing out voter guides, right? And so it married church and politics, which believe me historically, never a good idea. The moral majority became addicted to power. Is about leveraging sort of the name of God and church to get people in power so that we could have influence over our country or over other people. The moral majority era became, era became quite mean. I mean, just really nasty, anti, anti the politi other political party. 
If you were a religious Republican, you were fiercely mean towards Democrats. If you were a religious Democrat, you were fiercely mean towards Republicans. If you were a religious Republican, you, you could be anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant. There were all these things in there that it was just so terse and so mean that it set a culture of division, a culture of judgment, a culture of looking down and condemning others. The moral majority era also shut the doors to a lot of people. And over the last 10 years in particular, broadly speaking, the American culture has said, no, thank you. We're done. We're done marrying politics and church. We're done with this sort of culture of division. We're done with the meanness. We're done with judgmentalism. We're just done. We're just done. This us against the world paradigm just doesn't work. In John 17, 16, it sort of seems like Jesus is saying, you know, separate from the world when he says, my disciples do not belong to this world any more than I do. So people might say, well, does that mean we are to be against the world, us against the world? Well, no. Keep reading the very next verse. My disciples do not belong to this world any more than I do, but just as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I'm sending them into the world. So Jesus is saying, yes, there are things that are broken in this world. Yes, there are things that are harmful in this world. We're not talking about you know, celebrating the things that are harmful in this world. But as God sent Jesus into the world, Jesus sends us into the world to be a good influence, to be a light, to fully engage in the affairs of this world. That's what Jesus did, and we follow him. To be involved in our neighborhoods, to be involved in our neighbor's lives, to be involved maybe in education, and even involved in politics without marrying our faith with politics, to be involved in things that shape our, our, our world around us. But as we're involved, we're involved with love and grace and humility, seeking the best, believing the best, building you know, unity and healthy conversations, even when there's disagreement, we can be a light in this broken world. Jesus replaced us against the world with us for the world. So consider the world to be a community that we love and engage thoroughly. The second harmful religious paradigm, and we'll be brief on this, is the doom and gloom paradigm. The doom and gloom paradigm. And uh, I love the uh, Homer Simpson uh, meme here. I use it a lot. That's a lot or was a lot of church in the 80s, 90s, and even the 2000s. Doom and gloom. There's no hope ahead. The world is coming to an end. The end is near, right? That essentially says to the world there's no hope. And this is normal theology in so many churches, even today, more so in decades past, but even today. And here's kind of how it goes. The world is getting worse and worse, and the end of the world is near. Jesus is coming back to judge the world, rescue the faithful, and bring God's fierce and violent retribution. That's sort of the thinking. It's doom and gloom thinking. Doom and gloom thinking. And some of it's understandable when you read things like the Olivet Discourse, Teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, you read some scary stuff like this. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pangs. More to come. Jesus says it's gonna get worse. And so you read that and you think, oh, wow, well, maybe the world will come to an end in this violent clash, right? This Armageddon that the end of the world kind of theology uh, teaches. But when you really look down at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he's talking 
to the Jews in Jerusalem. And they were about to experience the end of the world. In about 30 AD, Jesus says, nation against nation, wars, earthquakes, famine, no stone will be left unturned. That's exactly what happened in 70 AD in Jerusalem. So the end that Jesus was talking about happened in 70 AD. Everything Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 happened when the Roman general Titus sacked the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the city, slaughtered the people, and distributed every other resident of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The end times in, in, in Matthew 24 already happened in 70 AD. Because Jesus also teaches, and the New Testament teaches, that there's hope for this world. Absolute hope for this world. There is, is hope ahead that says there's a future for this world, a better future. And I'm telling you, I get more cross eyes looking at me when I talk about an optimistic future than anything else we talk about here at Rancho. The world is not getting worse and worse. The world is not heading for catastrophe. I believe biblically by the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the New Testament, and just raw data, the world is getting better and better and better and better. I showed you the crime statistics. There are people who think that crime has never been as, worse, as bad as it is than right now. That is just simply not true. We are living in an era of relative, relative peace. Not just in our own nation, but globally, we live in relative peace. Now, are there wars? Yes. Are there problem spots? Yes. Are there problems in our own nation? Yes. But the data says it's getting better and better and better. We're living longer, we're living healthier, right? Um, we do not have a population crisis in the world. We will tap out about nine and a half billion people and then the population will level. It's just science, it's data. We're doing okay. Are there environmental problems to solve? Yes. Are there health problems to solve? Yes. Are there equity problems to solve? Yes. Justice problems to solve? Yes. There's a lot of problems to solve. But this world is not going to hell in a handbasket. This world is getting better and better and better. I wanna fast forward to Revelation chapter 21. Very end of the Bible, Revelation 21. One day soon, we're gonna study the book of Revelation again. It's been about 10 years, and I can't wait to get back into it. It's gonna be awesome. Revelation chapter 21 is the end of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible. And a lot of people think of Revelation as a doom and gloom book. It is very violent, it is very dramatic, and there's a reason for all that, which I will solve entirely. <laughs> That's tongue in cheek, I will not solve entirely, but we will get into it and it'll be fun. But the last chapter of the Bible, the last paragraphs of the Bible, have this incredible vision of what this world will become. Revelation 21 is about what this world will become. It's not about the next world, it's about this world. And so here is the author, the uh, Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, he has this vision and an angel shows him this vision. The angel says to John, come with me and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. Who's the body of Christ? The church. The angel, all giddy, says, John, I'm gonna show you the church. Now John's being persecuted. He's facing his own death for being a Christian. Christians all over the, the known world at the time, the known Western world at the time are being killed for their faith. And the angel says to John, it's going to get better. And I can't wait to show you what the church will become. And so there's this vision. He took me to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending to earth out of heaven from God. The angel says, I'm showing you the church. 
And what he showed was a bright, beautiful city coming from heaven to earth. And it's a city that's not just for the Jewish people. All tribes, all tongues, all nations in this bright, beautiful, glorious city. And it goes on to describe the city as 1,500, it's a 1,500 mile tall, wide, and deep diamond. Now it's all just word pictures, right? But the angel is saying, this is what the church will become. This bright, shining diamond that's the center of the world. Not the institution of the church, not church campuses, not church business, not church boards, but the people of God are gonna learn how to love each other. The people of God are gonna shine the love and the light of Jesus Christ in this world. The people of God on earth are gonna shine out the light of heaven. And here's what's gonna happen. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. All the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. What do we have? We have a church that is shining the light of God and the gates are never closed. North, east, south, and west, the gates are never closed. The church never shuts its door, ever. And people come in and out, and the glory of the world comes in and out, the glory of nations, the glory of, of monarchies, everything is going in and out, the church into the world and the world into the church, almost as if there's no divide at all. There's a wonderful community called the church, living in a wonderful community called the world, and making an impact in the world around us, loving each other, embracing each other, forgiving each other, believing the best in each other, where there's disagreement, have a humble dialogue, try to find areas that we can work together to solve our problems, that future can happen. That future can happen if we don't put our hope in politics, because that only divides. If we don't put our hope in social media, that only divides. If we don't pay too much attention to news media, that only divides. If we don't pay much attention to religious propaganda, that only divides. If we pay attention to the vision of Jesus that says, yes, I'm gonna be a part of the church, a diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ together. And then I'm gonna be a part of this big, beautiful world, loving this world, serving this world, making this world a little bit better. Loving the world like Jesus loved me. We're gonna close in a song. Evan, you brought this song to us. It is uh, kind of a, a little bit of a weird one for church, I'll be honest with you. That hurts my feelings. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's actually from a musical. It is, yes. And so you're gonna get a little theatrical on us. There's a couple of ribbons that I'll be twirling. Yes, nice, perfect. Yeah, I'm very excited about seeing that. But it, it's actually, so just imagine this song in a, in a Broadway theater, right? right? And Evan singing at the, in a Broadway show. Yes. Uh, what's the name of the musical? Uh, it's called Dear Evan Hansen. Great okay. first name. That's our His name's Evan. Come on. <laughs> uh, no, Dear Evan yes. Hansen. And, and the whole musical is, is a guy that doesn't kind of fit in in high school and he's going through all these things. And then um, through a series of events, this is kind of like the pinnacle of, this song is like the pinnacle of the whole plot of the, the they made a movie out of it as well. Um, but the whole plot of this, this musical is um, he kind of just being open and honest and revealing to everyone, like you might feel alone, you might feel secluded, but you're not. You're part of a greater community. We're all in this together. And that actually sparks this online thing that creates a big community that is a lot of help to a lot of different people. And so this, this individual feels alone, this high school kid feels alone, but then he doesn't see the support that could be around him and ends up coming around him. 
uh, at, the, at the close of this, of this production. And this is a song uh, written by the folks who wrote Greatest Showman. Greatest Showman. I'm a big Greatest Showman fan. Some of the greatest music that's ever been written. Yes. I do think they wrote the music and then said, oh man, we've got to make a movie around this. And but... I, I like the movie. Some people don't, but I do. But we can argue about that <laughs> yeah, forever. That's fine. That's but fine. this song. This song. Just kind of says it all. It's not a, a churchy song. It's not a worship song. It's not a stand and sing song. So we're just going to watch you do this theatrical production. <laughs> and yes. it's going to be great. All right. <laughs>
crashing through when you need a friend to carry you when you're broken on the ground you will be found so let the sun come streaming in as you reach up and you'll rise again lift your head and look around you will be found Be